So Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to begin at verse 11. We'll read through verse 20. The text says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This passage is, is about hope. It's about taking hold of hope. It's about the certainty of hope. It's about the, the strength of the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, a, a good memory verse for us is Proverbs thirteen twelve. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. We experience hope of all kinds on a, a number of different levels. Uh, we, we order something online, and we get the email saying that it was shipped, and there's a there's a tracking number, and we take the UPS number, FedEx number, we pop it into the website, and we, we can follow that box across country. It's really kind of a remarkable thing. Uh, and now in Norfolk, they'll actually sometimes, not every time, but sometimes they'll actually say, hey, you can track the truck, which doesn't do any good because they'll, they'll send us an email at 8 o'clock in the morning saying you can track the truck. They don't bring it to us till 5. It just keeps going down Norfolk Avenue and up 13th Street kind of right, right there. But that, that strengthens hope. I ordered it. I got the confirmation. I got the shipping. And now I, I've got the hope of getting it. And it's on the truck for delivery. And you're, you're looking for it. That, that's all about hope. And that's, that's just for something that's very, very small. Uh, we hope to get a letter from grace this week. It'd be nice to have a letter from grace this week, just something. Uh, we're on a, a private discussion group on Facebook for the, for the training squadron, which has two flights. There's a male flight and a female flight on the training squadron, and, and the guy's flight has been sending out letters for the last 10 days. And one woman took a picture of the letter and it's on a, an eight and a half by 11 lined sheet, like a piece of notebook paper. And it basically says, dear mama, happy birthday, mama. I'm doing okay. Send my ATM card, love. And it's, it was just written in 12 seconds, it looks like, in pencil. But it's something that says we're kind of here. So we have that hope. That's a, that's a bigger hope than a box is, is coming. That's a bigger hope. The biggest hope that we have 
It's for peace with our God. It's for reconciliation. It's for uh, relief from sin and from pain. Our biggest hope is really for Jesus himself to be with him where he is. And that's what the passage deals with. Now, because the passage was written to uh, Jews who had put their faith in Jesus, I think it's appropriate to kind of talk for a moment about Israel's hope. Israel's hope was basically the same thing. It was for atonement, for forgiveness, and for reconciliation. And looking down at the the bottom of the passage in in verse 19 and 20, the the hope that we have enters within the veil where Jesus is entered. That's a, a, a picture of the Holy of Holies. And it's a picture of the veil that stood in front of the Holy of Holies. Israel's hope had to take place outside the Holy of Holies. Israel's hope was outside the Holy of Holies. Only one person could go in there, the high priest. He could go, only go in on one day of year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. When he went in, he brought in a sacrifice for his own sins and then a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And their sins were temporarily covered, not taken away, It's not so much that peace is established with God as judgment is delayed for another year. There's no access for anybody else. The veil stands there. My understanding is that that veil could have been as thick as six inches, that it was made up of multiple layers of fabric all kind of fastened and punched together, that it was enormously heavy, that even when the high priest went in, it took two other men to pull that veil open so that he could pass through. When Jesus died, when he yielded up his spirit, that veil was torn from the top down. And a way was made. Access was made. The people of Israel still have hope of atonement and forgiveness and reconciliation, but they they hope from the outside. They hope from the outside. Our hope is different because our hope enters within the veil, verse 19 says. Our hope goes where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. He has gone there to make a full atonement, not just to cover our sins, but to remove our sins. He has not gone there to uh, stand there for a few moments and then to exit He has gone there eternally. He's gone there for all time. He has not gone into a a small room in a man-made building on earth. He has gone into the very expanse of heaven. And he has gone there as a forerunner, which means he's he's the first, but not the last. As the forerunner, Jesus is the first, but not the last. He's made a way for us to go. And so we will be with him. All in Christ will live in eternal peace with their God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Utterly forgiven, utterly cleansed of sin, the fullness of the promises ours in Christ. That, that's the culmination of our hope. Israel hoped outside the veil. Our hope is inside the veil where Jesus has gone and where Jesus is now. 
Scripture says, interceding for us. Why is our hope so different? Why is our hope so different? Well, it's different because it says in verse 19 again that it is sure and steadfast. It is sure and steadfast. That means it is guaranteed and it is unshakable. It's sure and steadfast because it's been promised by God. Verses 17 and 18. God desired uh, to show to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeableness of his purpose. His purpose is to save sinners. His purpose hasn't changed. And so God who wants us to see the the unchangeableness of his promise gave us an oath swearing by his own name. So by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, and and while there's some difference of opinion in the commentaries about what these two two, uh, unchangeable things are, the, the likelihood is that he's making reference to the very existence of God and to the promise God has made. God can't lie about his own existence, and he can't lie about what he's promised to do. He can't, he can't lie about those things and still be God. And God doesn't lie anyway, but he has actually, uh, he has actually uh, undergirded and emphasized his promise to us with his own nature, with his own existence so that we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of that hope, to take grip of that hope and not let go. We would have strong encouragement that, in other words, that we would have every reason to hope, that we would have every reason to grab it and hold on to it firmly without falling into hopelessness, without falling into unbelief, which is one of the concerns in the book of Hebrews. Those who have said, I believe in Jesus, and then are turning away. Now, as an example of this, we're going to talk about examples a little bit later, but as examples of of what he means here, back in verse 13, the writer gives us the example of God's promise to Abraham. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. All God had to do with Abraham regarding the birth of his son, which is what this is dealing with, was say, next year, Sarah will have a child. And and there's a point where he does say that. Next year, Sarah will have a child. But God goes two more steps. He says, I will, I will, twice. And he says, surely, surely. So God could have simply said to Abraham, you're going to have a son. And the promise would have been set. And God could have simply said to Abraham, I will bless you. I will multiply you. And the promise would have been set. You have God's personal word on it, but then God takes the oath and the oath is in that word, surely. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. And verse 15 says, having patiently waited, Abraham received the promise. Abraham obtained the promise. 
Abraham had hoped for a son. It, it was the thing for him. He and Sarah had been married a long time. She was barren. Abraham had a, a child ultimately with Hagar, or a son with Hagar, and other children besides. So the issue was not Abraham. The issue was that Sarah was unable to conceive. When God first called Abraham out of Ur, of the Chaldees, and made these promises to him, Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65 years old. God says to him, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky and like the sands of the sea. And and the scripture says, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned to him, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham took that promise of God and says, I believe that. And then a a 10 year period goes by and there's, there's no child. There's no child. The scripture here says that Abraham patiently waited, and and I think all of us know the story of Hagar. Ten years in, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, it's not happening. Which, within the realm of, of trying to be delicate, it means that there were some attempts to make it happen. And she wasn't conceiving. Sarah goes to Abraham and says, it's not happening, but I have this Egyptian slave Hagar. I'll give her to you as a wife. And maybe the Lord will give us a child that way. And sure enough, Hagar conceived and gave birth to a son. And they named that son Ishmael. And then the Lord came to Abraham and said, Abraham, surely I will bless you. Surely I will multiply you. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. And Abraham says, Ishmael. And the Lord said, no. No, you and Sarah. You and Sarah. Not Ishmael. And another 15 years goes by. God waits until, as we saw in uh, in a previous passage a week or two ago, God waits until Abraham looks at his own body and says, it's as good as dead. And my wife's womb is dead. And that was when the Lord gave them a child and they obtained the promise. So this, this episode with Hagar, is that a moment when Abraham loses faith? We could say that. We could say that Abraham got his eyes off the Lord and he lost faith. But, but I just want you to consider this. There was never a point when, when Abraham said, I won't have a child. They had Ishmael with Hagar because he believed in the promise of God that he would be the father of many nations. He didn't understand the means. He was confused about what God was going to do to bring it to pass. And because it didn't happen over a 10-year period of time, 10 years is an enormous time to wait for something. 10 years. Jenny's been waiting eight months for this baby. She's got a few more weeks to wait. That's, that's a long wait. We saw Grace two and a half weeks ago. Haven't seen her since. Haven't heard from her since. 
That feels like a little bit of a long time to wait. Ten years. If Grace got out of boot camp, went to tech school, went to the secondary tech school, and said, I'm being sent overseas, and we heard nothing for ten years? I don't know how how you would function. Ten years is an enormous time to wait, but Abraham and Sarah never doubted the promise. They simply tried to make the promise happen themselves. They decided that they were going to have to take matters into their own hands. They tried to force the fulfillment, and of course it fails. When we try and force God's hand, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. And it's one episode in 25 years of, uh, that we know of where Abraham says, forget it, I'm done with that, I'm going to try this. So I, I think that there may be an element of doubt for Abraham, but never complete. He never denied that God was there. He never denied that the promise was there. Well, the Lord wants us to have the same kind of, uh, of assurance that he gave Abraham so that we who have taken refuge in him would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that he has given us. That hope, it says in verse 19, is an anchor for our souls. It's an anchor for our souls. That means that it it stabilizes us in the midst of our suffering. It stabilizes us in the midst of our suffering and our pain. It joins us inseparably to Christ. An anchor doesn't do any good if it's not on a chain. I'm I'm not a professional sailor. I've I've never been involved in maritime work, but I have a theory. And my theory is, if you're on a boat, it doesn't matter how big. If you have an anchor and it's not attached to anything and you throw it over, it doesn't accomplish anything. The hope that we have is an anchor because we're attached to Christ. And Christ is on the other side of the veil. Christ is in the heavenlies waiting for us. He says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's what he's doing now. As he prays us home, as he prepares a place for us, we are anchored to him. So that as the storms of life hit us, as the oppression of the world hits us, as we are shaken by pain and loneliness and disappointment, we are permanently anchored to who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. There are some really wonderful pictures that are given to us here. One of the pictures given to us here, of course, is the Holy of Holies. Within the Holy of Holies, there's only one object, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark of the Covenant were, were three things. The, uh, the tablets of the law, Aaron's rod which budded, and a jar of manna. The tablets of the law, of course, are, are the truth. They're the word of God. Aaron's rod that budded comes from uh, an episode that was known as Korah's Rebellion. Somebody stood up and said, why should Aaron be the one to be doing this? Aren't we capable to? Aren't we God's people too? And 
God said, everybody who thinks that, come forward, bring forth your shepherd's staff, your rod, and lay it down. Well, a shepherd's staff is a, is a dead stick. It's a strong piece of wood that they use to help hike and to help direct sheep and to rescue and defend. It, it was a tool. It was like a, a shovel handle. They put them down on the ground, and as they were watching, Aaron's rod suddenly burst into life. Twigs appeared on it, and leaves appeared on the twigs, and buds on the leaves. And God said, Aaron is my priest. And so they preserved it. They preserved it. And the jar of manna, of course, the manna was the bread from heaven that God gave them miraculously. Every morning they would go out six days a week. On Friday, they would collect double amount to cover the Sabbath. God would provide a double amount. It wouldn't go bad. Any other day, if they collected too much, it would go bad. They experienced this daily miracle. Let me make this connection for you. Let me make this connection for you. In John 14, 6, the Lord Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As the way, Jesus is the good shepherd who holds that rod, who guides, who leads, who corrects, who defends. And so the Ark of the Covenant containing Aaron's rod contains a picture of the authority and the love and the care of our God. Jesus says, I am the truth. The Ark of the Covenant contained the tablets of the law. It contained the word of God. John 1.1 says that Jesus is the word of God and God himself. The ark contained the pot of manna, that bread. Jesus says, I am the life. And in John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. And so I am the way, the truth, the life is really depicted in physical form within the Ark of the Covenant. The Jews standing outside that veil, those who were outside in the the priestly court for the priests, in the the court of Israel for the men, the court of of women for the women and the the children, kept away by these various layers, were all outside and, and secreted inside that little room so far away from them were the emblems of the Savior. And the emblems of God and man being at peace with one another. Everything within the Ark of the Covenant is for us. The word of God, the bread of God, the leadership of God, all of that is for us. The fact that it dwells there peacefully in the Holy of Holies is is evidence that God says there will be a day when I and my people will dwell together in peace. But now for us, Jesus has gone within that temple in heaven like the ark. And Jesus is the word of God. He is the bread of life. He is, he is the shepherd. So what do we need to do in order for this to be a reality for us? What are we supposed to do here? In verses 11 and 12, he he gives the application before he gets to his, his teaching. He says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence that you've been showing so as to realize the full assurance of hope 
See, hope begins this passage, hope ends the passage, and the full assurance of hope is because of the greatness of God, the promise of God, the certainty of the purposes of God, the power of Jesus Christ and our connection with him. To realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but rather be diligent, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What does it take to obtain the the, the promise as Abraham did? It takes faith and it takes patience. It takes faith and it takes patience. We know what faith is. Faith is trusting. Faith is relying on. The word patience here isn't just, well, try and be patient. The word patience here is the Greek word makrothumia. It means long-suffering. It means endurance. It, it means gritting your teeth and hanging on for a long time. And putting these two words together, it's, it's not that we separate faith and patience and we say, I've got tremendous faith but no patience. He's talking about long-suffering faith, enduring faith, faith that doesn't quit, faith that doesn't give up. Abraham's a picture of that. Abraham got, and Sarah got confused about halfway through. They weren't sure how God was going to achieve what he was going to achieve. But they knew that he would do it. And he says that we are to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We're to imitate godly men and women. Imitation here doesn't mean that we, we fake faith. It doesn't mean that we pretend. It means that we find examples of godly men and women who hung on in the midst of, of hard circumstances and continued to believe. And we use them as an example of our faith. And it's an example that we should follow. The place to start is obviously in Scripture. In the very next verse, verse 13, he brings up Abraham and then uses Abraham as, a, as the first example of this. When we get into Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to see uh, more than a dozen men and, and women who are named. And I, and I think when we get to Hebrews 11, we're going to take weeks to get through that chapter because we're going to look at the lives of those people and not just read their names. Because of the encouragement of, of those who endured and who hung on it's so important that we find those examples and that we even find them with with one another hebrews chapter 10 verses 23 to 25 says let us hold fast the confession of our hope there's that word again without wavering that is take a hold of it and don't let go for he who promised is faithful that, that's actually a pretty good summary of the passage we're going through. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How do we do that? Well, by not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's common in our, in our time, we were there, Linda and I were there, probably most of us have been there at some time, where, where we say, 
I don't know if I'll go to church today. I don't feel in need of the event. What we're doing right now is the event. We start about quarter to 11 and we sing and then we pray. There's an announcement or two if we have that. We go through the word, we dismiss, we have a fellowship time. We have the event. And there are people who who got up this morning and said, I don't need the event today. I'm going to do something else. But the church in the scripture is never an event. The church in the scripture is the people. And what he says is, don't forsake assembling with other believers on a regular basis. Why? Because we need each other. Because we are facing nonstop opposition from this world. Some of that opposition is, is so subtle that we don't even really realize that it's there. Some of it is so obvious that everybody stands back with their mouths open and watches. We're certainly doing that with what's going on in China and other places in the world. The, the Christian baker in Colorado has been in the news again. Remember Two homosexuals went and said, we want you to make a wedding cake. He said, I I won't do that because of my my religious principles, my, my beliefs in scriptural marriage and what God has done. And the world fell in on this man's head. That's opposition. He fought that all the way through an unfair, bigoted, prejudicial process in the state of Colorado, fought it to the Supreme Court, And the Supreme Court found a technicality. They didn't actually rule on his behalf. They simply ruled that the state of Colorado exhibited religious prejudice against him. That if they could find a non-religious reason, the Supreme Court wouldn't object. He's back in the news because it seems on a fairly regular basis, people go in deliberately to record their encounters with him. They're trying to set him up. He hasn't quit his business. He's still baking. And when they come in, he answers to the best of his ability from his integrity as a Christian and his faith. And it's just a matter of time until some other attorney manages to build a case and the world falls in on this man's head again. And the world is really arrayed against him. But we face the exact same thing. And if you don't believe that that's true, then here's a little experiment. This afternoon or tomorrow or Tuesday, go sit with somebody in your family or or a close friend who doesn't know the Lord, who may be non-religious or who may be religious but not a Christian. They have no faith in, in Jesus. And say to them, I'm really afraid for you because there is a God and there is a day of judgment coming. And because of your sins... You deserve eternal judgment, and you will receive eternal judgment. And God sent his son to die as the penalty for sin, so that all who put their faith in him would be forgiven and would not face that judgment because his son faced that judgment, but rather receive the very righteousness of the son because all of our good works are filthy rags. And so as helpless people who can only say, I believe, God will bring us into his family, forgive our sins, and be at peace with us, and we will know him for eternity. Now, some of you are are thinking, perhaps, no, I'm not going to do that. And sometimes 
there are a ver variety of reasons we think that, but you know, one of the reasons that we think that is I know what they would say. I know that they would accuse me of being bigoted. They would say, I don't want to hear your opinion. They would say that that's hateful. I've had people say, I can't say that. She's a friend of mine, which is stunning to me. You're a friend of mine, but I won't tell you that you're in, in danger of eternal torment because I don't want to risk our friendship now. But see, what's really behind that is this constant pushback, this constant oppression, this constant opposition that we have as the people of God. It, it goes through every aspect of life. It goes through every aspect of life. Two stories. One, and we hear this story frequently, a teacher in a public school has a Bible on her desk and she's fired. And, and there's no recourse. She's simply fired. She wasn't reading it to the children. She wasn't praying for the children. She wasn't preaching to the children. It was simply in view and she's fired and there's nothing she can do about it. And that happens fairly frequently. A week or two ago, I read about an, an incident in New York where a, a restaurant employee told a transgender person that they couldn't use the bathroom they wanted to use and it was obvious that they shouldn't be. And the restaurant was immediately fined $7,000. And there's no recourse. See, if you stand up as a Christian and say, this is what I believe, the world will shout you down. But if you stand up with a non-Christian idea and say, this is what I believe, the world will be behind you 100%. We know this. So this time that we gather to encourage one another, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds is absolutely critical because you're not going to get that encouragement anywhere else. There's nobody else on the face of this earth except your brothers and sisters in Christ who will tell you, lead your family, pray with your children, be faithful at work, be a, a godly man, be a godly woman. Nobody will tell you that. Nobody will tell you to believe in in truth, or the righteousness of God. So, let's commit ourselves. Let's commit ourselves to diligent faith, to faith that doesn't quit, that faith that works hard, to faith that puts in the effort of maintaining itself and of resisting the, the pressure from the world to back down. Let's commit ourselves to a long-suffering faith, We can get these romantic ideas about suffering. We read the stories about the pastor and the church in Chengdu, and we read those with tremendous respect and honor and admiration for what they're doing. But you know what they're doing is not romantic. What they're doing is not a story of, of warmth and power. What they're doing is terrifying and frightening. And they're, they're hanging on because of their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're facing all kinds of uncertainty. And we face the same sorts of things. Let's commit ourselves to trusting God in our suffering. If you take some time later to read in Hebrews 12, you'll find out that God disciplines his children, that every bit of suffering that we endure is ultimately permitted by his hand for our strength, for our growth, that we may trust him more and trust the world less. And so we can trust him even when we're suffering. Let's commit ourselves to seeking out godly examples. 
anything that we're doing, whether it's, whether it's parenting, whether it's work, whether it is in prayer. Uh, I seek godly examples of preaching all the time. I, I try to listen to guys that I want to be like. Sometimes I, when I read through my notes, I imagine uh, we've been listening to Sinclair Ferguson in Sunday school, and I've got that that uh, set on audio, and when I work out, I listen. So sometimes I read through my notes, and I imagine his voice. How would he say this? And let's commit ourselves to setting godly examples. You know, there are eyes on you. There are people who are watching you. You don't even know that they're watching you. But almost almost every person in this room, somebody has said to me about you, I really admire him. I really admire her because every one of you, every one of you, whether you know people are watching or not, there's usually some eyes on you somewhere. You can be a godly example to somebody else. If you want to imagine that we're all heading up a road single file and sometimes there's a space between us and as we're going, I've got my eyes on Jewel and she's ahead of me and I'm just trying to follow her because she's setting the way. But as I'm following Jewel, Pat is behind me and Pat's keeping her eyes on me. Jewel's watching Randy and he's out ahead and Randy has his eyes on Jesus. We encourage each other. Father, we thank you for your love for us and for your word. We thank you for the enormity of the hope that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that this hope is an anchor for our souls. We thank you, Lord, that this hope is sure and steadfast. And it's an anchor for our souls and it's sure and steadfast because it enters within the veil where Jesus has gone. Jesus, who said that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Jesus, who is the forerunner in, in the heavenly places, so that while he is the first man to be there, the first human to be there in glory, He's not the last. He's not going to come back to this world and live our lives with us. He's done that. We are going to go to him and be with him and be with him as he is in his relationship as the God-man with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask for strength. We ask for encouragement. We look to you to give us encouragement and to give us hope and to give us strength. But Lord, help us to set an example for others as well that we may strengthen one another. Help us to be willing to look to one another and to find the blessed things, to find the faithful things and to emulate those things. As Paul said to the Corinthians, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. We weren't meant to live alone as Christians. We need one another. All of us need all of us. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that you have made. We thank you that you have promised by your very own existence and nature. And thank you for building our hope today 
strengthen us for tomorrow. And we pray in the name and for the sake of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.